Well, the Winter Olympics are back. I love the Olympics. Some of you probably watched the U.S. coverage to learn about the evolution of Sean White's different hairstyles or what Lindsey Vaughn eats for breakfast, and others of you watch the Canadian coverage so you can actually watch sports. Um, but either way, for the next few weeks, um, many of us will be paying attention to the spectacle of the Olympics. Elite athletes competing for Olympic glory. What are some of your favorite sports that are in the Winter Olympics? Curling, Curling of course. Biathlon, Biathlon Corey, okay. Figure skating. Figure skating or just listening to Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir talk about figures? It's kind of crazy, yeah. I'm going to do my hair like that. Yeah. Snowboarding, that's a cool one. Hockey, of course, yeah. What? <laughs> this should be one, right? Yeah. Oh. Don't even get me started about Summer Olympics. They took wrestling out. But anyway, um, I find some sports more entertaining than others, but one thing I do love about the Olympics is that they expose me to sports I may never normally watch and usually never pay attention to. And whether or not I find a sport entertaining, I can appreciate the difficulty and the skill involved and the sacrifice each of those athletes has made to excel in their field. And I guess when it comes down to it, I like seeing people at their best, at their gloriousness. Glory is the main theme of our passage this evening. It's the glory of Jesus we'll be focusing on, and as we'll see, Jesus is going to redefine what it means to be glorious or pursue glory. Our story takes place right after the transfiguration of Jesus that Christy just read about. It's appropriate, of course, because today is Transfiguration Sunday. And on this day, we recall the story of Jesus taking his three closest disciples up on a mountain. The disciples get sleepy, and when they awaken, Jesus is there talking with Moses and Elijah, two men of famous faith in the Hebrew Scriptures, two men, maybe more importantly in this story, that have been dead for centuries and centuries. So somehow Jesus is talking with them on this mountain. So anyway, they're up on the mountaintop, and while talking to these two prominent Old Testament figures, uh, Jesus, uh, his appearance is transfigured or transformed into this shining, glowing, lightning-like craziness. And a cloud appears, and it envelops these people on the mountaintop, just like the cloud of God's presence in the Exodus stories. And out of this cloud, the voice of the Father is heard, and he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now, I preached on this very passage last year, and so if you want more in-depth stuff on the transfiguration, just listen to it online. But let me just give you the, the outline so that we can move on to the next passage. Jesus is on a mountaintop where God once spoke to Moses and Elijah. Jesus is on a mountaintop speaking to Moses and Elijah. Way back in Exodus, after Moses spoke to God on a mountaintop, he glowed so brightly that for a period of time, when he came down from the mountain, he had to wear a veil over his face so that the people could talk to him without being blinded by the Shekinah glory. Jesus is on a mountain, and his whole person is shining like lightning. Jesus is on the mountain speaking with Moses who represents the law and Elijah who represents the prophets and the voice of the Father comes out of this heavenly cloud and what does the Father say? Listen to the law. Listen to the prophets. No. 
He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is none other than the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. He's not come to contradict the law or to replace the prophets. He's come to fulfill the law and to fulfill the prophecies of the prophets. Now, with the Olympics in mind, we may imagine that the transfiguration uh, is Jesus' moment of glory, his podium experience, his gold medal, medal ceremony. After all, he's literally at the top of a mountain glowing, affirmed by Father God in front of his closest disciples and two of the most famous people in the Old Testament. Even Moses and Elijah just get silver or bronze compared to Jesus in this picture. And the analogy seems to make sense, especially when you consider that the original Olympics, the games were performed in the shadow of Mount Olympus, the home of the Greek gods and goddesses. At the top of the mountain, these deities were believed to dwell high above human frailty and mortality. And for the few Olympic champions, glory was to step onto the podium, not quite as high as the gods, but certainly above the other mortal men and women. And that's where this analogy breaks down. For the Greeks, and really for the world that we live in today, the direction of glory is up. It's in the spotlight. It's about seeking more status and more privilege, more fame and more fortune. But that is not the way of the kingdom of God. That is not the way of Jesus. For Jesus and for his disciples, the direction of glory is down. So let's pick up the story where Christy left off and read together um, Luke 9. I'm actually gonna pick it up in 37 and go through 56, so there'll be a little overlap. If you're able, would you stand? On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, and a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you, Look at my son, he's my only boy, and the spirit, or a spirit, seizes him, and he suddenly screams and throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you, and how long shall I put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they could not or would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. And an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood, stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. And Jesus said, do not prevent 
or hinder him, for he is not against you who is for you. And when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered in a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Lord, thank you for this revelation of who you are, of your character. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your ministry of opening up the word to us, of reminding us and teaching us the ways of Jesus. And I pray that you would do that ministry in us tonight as we dig into this text and try to unpack it. Amen. You may be seated. There are several sermons in that long passage. Don't worry, I'm only going to preach one, and it's called The Direction of Glory. One way to look at this passage is by looking at it as six episodes of failure. Jesus has just come down from a literal mountaintop experience, and he's about to head into the very mundane, banal, failure-ridden experience of the real world, the world that you and I most often live in, right? And he'd gone up on the mountain with his three disciples, so when he gets down, he meets the other nine. And it turns out that while he was gone, uh, his, uh, his disciples encountered a man whose only son was tormented by a demon. In the ancient world, disciples could earn honor by being associated with the great rabbi. You wanted to have a teacher who was awesome. But rabbis also had their honor tied up with the actions of their disciples. Right? Today, in higher education, for example, students typically choose their schools based on the teachers that they want to, te- to learn under, right? And granted, there's academic standards and things like that, but most, most students look at, okay, I want to go into such and such a field. I want to go into philosophy. Where do I want to say? I want to start Dr. Wasserman, so I'm going to try to get into Western. Come on, bring it. Right, that's kind of how it works. You choose where you want to go. But, but that wasn't the way it is in, in first century Judaism. Rabbis would choose their disciples, in a way, the reputation of the rabbi would also depend on how his, his students represented themselves in public life and then later on as in their professional life. So now think for a moment about the 12 men that Jesus chose to follow him. Fisherman, a tax collector. Philip, which is a Greek name, probably meaning his father was a Gentile. Judas, the betrayer, Simon, the zealot, who's likely a political revolutionary. Jesus was not out to win worldly glory by picking these 12 people. He did not pick safe disciples, certainly not disciples who would make his name great. Quite the opposite. And in our text, these disciples failed to heal the man's son, thus bringing shame upon their master, Jesus. In the second episode of failure, Jesus calls his 12 disciples together as the crowds are still rejoicing over his healing. He says, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be handed over to, into the hands of men. He gives them special insight into his fate, and yet they still don't understand. 
It's not that Jesus is being cryptic or unclear. It's more of an issue that they couldn't comprehend, that the one who glows on a mountaintop and hangs out with Moses and Elijah, the one who calms storms with his voice and casts out demons with the word, the one who they saw doing these glorious deeds, how could their glorious teacher be handed over to mere mortal men to be destroyed? Cognitive dissonance. Their definition of glory didn't have categories for what Jesus was saying. And yet, there's a hint in this sentence that they may have understood, but the text says they were afraid to ask him about this statement. You know how it is. You have this sense that something isn't quite right, maybe in a relationship, but you'd rather not know all the facts, hashtag fake news, because if your hunch is confirmed, then you might have to actually change your life. After an unspecified amount of time, we get to our third episode. An argument among Jesus' disciples breaks out about which of them was the greatest. And again, such a worldly emphasis. We're so insecure that we feel we need to give ourselves props. We need to self-promote and self-congratulate. I mean, it's commonplace, right, for the athlete that makes a touchdown, points to his own name and the number, even though there's like all these other people on the team that made it happen. Uh, we self-congratulate. It's, it's, it's the popular thing to do. People hash, post with their hashtag winning from their vacation spots and the cool dinner they just went to. And we elect people to public uh, service who only read their own tremendous press and report their better-than-everyone-else achievements. These are Jesus' disciples we're talking about. If you were writing a story about a God and you were trying to convince first century people to follow him, you would never write in details about his disciples acting like this. Failure after failure. No, you would write something about this God's perfection, his wisdom, his power, his connections, his influential web of society. And that's why Jesus' next move is so shocking. In the face of his disciples' arrogance, he takes a child from the crowd, and he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for the one who is least among you is the one who is great. Scandalous. In the Greco-Roman world, there was no lower social position than a child, especially a child under 12. Joel Green writes, children were the weakest, most vulnerable in all the population. They had little implicit value as human beings, a reality that is related to the high likelihood that they would not survive into adulthood. One early Jewish teaching equated a grown man talking with children that weren't his own as a waste of time on par with sleeping in and drinking wine at midday. Now, clearly, our cultural trends have shifted. I don't mind sleeping in and drinking wine midday, sometimes on vacation. But, um, but the point is that Jesus is turning this idea of what glorifies a person on his head. Notice that there's nothing inherently great about a child, nor is there anything inherently great about receiving a child. Instead, the greatness comes when a person receives another person even weaker and less influential than themselves when they receive them in Jesus' name. It's association with Jesus that makes a person great. Well, the disciples don't learn their lesson because in the fourth episode of failure, they have heard that someone who is not part of their inner circle um, has been casting out demons in Jesus' name. 
They actually tried to prevent this other minister from doing the work of Jesus because he wasn't in their group. It's not like the other guy was teaching heresy or forsaking the scriptures. He just wasn't part of their group. And again, Jesus' disciples have failed to understand that what their teacher has been talking about and demonstrating through his ministry to them, if they fail, it falls on Jesus and his reputation. The fifth and sixth episodes of failure come in the final section of our passage. Jesus is about to travel through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, and he sends his disciples ahead to make preparations. The Samaritans, who were at odds with the Jews, these groups did not like each other. They thought each other's theology was wrong, and their approach to God was wrong. Anyway, these Samaritans rejected the message of Jesus and didn't show hospitality to his disciples. By not receiving his disciples, the Samaritans reject Jesus as well. This is the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel. There's 24 chapters in that gospel. By chapter nine, uh, Jesus has been rejected already by the Samaritans now, rejected by Gentiles, rejected by Jewish religious authorities, and failed repeatedly by his own disciples. That's the direction of glory. And for the sixth failure, we almost have to chuckle at the disciples' response. They didn't learn from the example of the child or the episode with the man uh, uh, after casting out demons in Jesus' name. In the face of rejection, they ask Jesus, they say, Lord, do you want us to command fire from heaven to come down, like burn up these Samaritans, like nuke them, I got my finger on the button, do you want me to, to do this? Yeah, like, okay, it's not a good idea. They hadn't learned that Jesus hasn't come to destroy, but to save. They haven't learned that when a person or a town rejects Jesus, they're already incurring judgment on themselves. They don't need to call down fire. Okay, so let's just pause here. We've looked at the deified, glowing, lightning Jesus coming down from the mountaintop, and we've looked at a mingling with the wayward and sinful world, and we've seen six episodes of failure. And now comes the sermon. Don't worry, it's shorter than the first part. One way to preach this would be to look at all of these six failures and deduce that we should try and do the opposite of what the disciples did. The disciples failed to cast out the demon. We should strive to have more faith. The disciples failed to understand. We should take Jesus' words more seriously. The disciples fail by arguing about which is greatest. We should learn to show deference to one another. The disciples fail by alien, uh, alienating another follower of Jesus who wasn't in their particular group. We should show humility and openness to other expressions of the church. The Samaritans fail to receive Jesus. We should make sure our hearts are open to him. The disciples take rejection personally and want to judge the Samaritans for their sin. We should learn to expect rejection and allow God to do his own judging. No doubt, there are sermons like that. I've heard them. People like those types of sermons because they wrap up Bible stories neatly and give a clear application, which is what you're all here for, isn't it? They even make us feel that funny feeling of mixed up feelings of a pride on the one hand, like I can do some of that stuff. And the feeling of conviction on the other because we know we should feel a little bit of guilt and so when we say all those things we should do and we know we can't do them, well then it kind of feels Christian to feel a little guilty, right? It makes me feel I'm alive, like a little pain. 
That's because we're sick. But if I preach that sermon, and if we read this passage and jump right to how we should behave as the primary message of this passage, I'm convinced that we will have missed the gospel. If we read this story as a morality tale about how we're supposed to behave, we've turned the gospel into a self-help manual, and we make Jesus into a mere character in the story, at best as a foil, a mirror that shows our sinfulness and his greatness. The story is not primarily about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus, of course. And this story is about Jesus and failure at the foot of the mountain. It shows who he is, that failure at the foot of the mountain with all of his disciples and all of these things. It just as much, it's just as much about that as it, as it is about his transfiguration. The great missiologist Alan Hirsch spoke at the Midwinter Conference in Chicago a couple weeks back. He said, we need to be reading and teaching the Gospels. Because if we get Jesus wrong, we get God wrong. And I would take that a step further. We need to be reading and teaching the Gospels because if we get Jesus wrong, we get God wrong. And if we get God wrong, we get each other wrong. Because you and me were made in God's image. If we think God is just this perfect being, untouchable on a mountain, and that's what we are supposed to be like, then we are ever going to fail and live in shame. We are ever destined to tear each other down to make ourselves feel better. And if God is merely a lowly traveling teacher who does some cool miracles, but ultimately has failed, uh, is failed by his disciples and is killed by the establishment on a cross, then we bear the image of one destined to failure. Neither one of those caricatures is true of who Jesus is. Jesus shows us something completely different. In fact, the key verse of what the glory of God is comes right at the crux is verse 951. In fact, would you put that picture up there? The, the verse is, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Should be a photo. There you go. This is one of my gluttonous bookshelf of commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. And this particular one is a two-volume commentary uh, by Daryl Bach. The first volume, you see the one on the left, is uh, 956 pages. The second volume is 1,192 pages. Clearly, they're not cut in half by volume of, of words or pages. And they're not even cut in half Maybe you can't read those words on there. They're not cut in half even by chapters 1 through 9 or chapters 1 through 12. They're cut in half at chapters 1 through 950 and then 951 to the rest. This is a hinge verse for the entire gospel of Luke. This is the point where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. In the Hebrew scriptures, to set your face toward something was to set your will, your effort, your destiny toward a specific end. And one of the more famous passages where this term is used is from Isaiah chapter 50. The passage describes an unnamed servant of God who would suffer in obedience to God in order to save the people of God. Listen, um, it reads like this. I gave my back to those who strike me, 
and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. The Jesus who speaks on the mountain with Elijah fulfills the prophecy of prophets. He has set his face toward this task. Thank you, Sam. You can take that down. The main point of these stories is not mere moralistic commands. I mean, the world would be a better place if we had more faith in Jesus. The world would be a better place if we were humble if we showed deference to others, if we loved the least in Jesus' name and showed forgiveness rather than judgment, of course. But guess what? That's not anything new. Those imperatives are all in the first five books of the Bible. They're in the Proverbs. They're in the Psalms. You don't need Jesus to get those imperatives. Those have always been true callings on the people of God. The main point of this passage is to communicate who Jesus is. The firstborn of all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created through him and for him. He is the one, that guy, is the one who also emptied himself and was born in a manger. He's the son of God, bursting forth on mountaintops with lightning bolts and glory and divinity. And he's also the same one who descends those mountains and enters into our failings and gives himself unto death in order to rescue us. Jesus is the risen and reigning one who has sovereignty over all the destiny of the world, and Jesus is the head of the church. He chooses to work, check this out, through you and me, and through those 12 types of disciples. This passage isn't about us, right? It's about Jesus. Consider his glory, and then consider the glory of what he's done for us. Allow Jesus for a moment. It, it, it helped me in preparation for this sermon to do this, so I'm just going to offer it up to you. Close your eyes if you're comfortable for a minute. And allow Jesus to move beyond a character in a book. Allow Jesus to move beyond historical facts and points of doctrine and allow yourself to love him, to be moved by his love for us, to be filled with adoration for the God who would love us so much. The church, preachers like me, Bible study leaders, we can declare a shadow of Christianity that will focus on morals and focus on behavior, but it will just be an exercise in going through the motions. The life-changing gospel has always been about Jesus first. And I'm convinced that if we truly experience the love of Jesus, if we allow ourselves to be saved by him because we recognize we need to be saved by him, then love for others, love for the creation, and dare I say it, a healthy love for ourselves will be the natural outflow.
Lord Jesus, we sing words like there's none like you. We see them in early Christian hymns. But what we've seen in Luke chapter nine makes it even more obvious. There is none like you. A God so powerful, sovereign over all things who would also become incarnate and live among us. A God who can heal and raise people from the grave would choose to go to the grave for us. A God who could exist in a way that you wouldn't have to feel pain. You chose to come and to take our pain and suffering. And I pray for help, Lord, that these, these things that we say about you, these things that we read about you, wouldn't, wouldn't remain words, wouldn't remain doctrine, but that they would move us deep in our hearts to adore you, to love you. And to imitate you in the power of your spirit. Thank you for showing us the direction of glory. And now I pray for courage that we would follow that way. Amen.